It's said that on one occasion, the Buddha was staying at Savati in Jetta's Grove, the monastery that his very devoted lay supporter, Anattapindaka, had built for him and his uh, community. And he was sitting around with a group of monks one evening, and just kind of out of the blue, as he sometimes did, he said, monks, listen and pay close attention, and I will speak. And this is what he said. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day and by night, is one who has had a single excellent day. And gratified, the monks delighted in the Buddha's words. So you've all been here practicing diligently by day and by night through this first full day of the retreat. And have you had a single excellent day? <laughs> we have to think about what was it that the Buddha considered a single excellent day. It wasn't a day filled with unceasing bliss, which is a good thing, because that's probably not what most of us have had, have had here. But instead, he thought of it in terms of seeing each presently arisen state, each moment's experience, seeing for what it is, knowing it, and being sure of it. So whatever has happened today or not happened today, you've all been cultivating this ideal of awareness, of presence cultivating the powerful intention to really know each moment's experience, to leave the preoccupation with past and future that we're so often caught up in aside for this time, to the best of our abilities. So we do our best on retreat to really be here now, to show up for this moment, and what's happening in this moment. Everything, everything is happening in this moment. All of life is unfolding. My daughter, um, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, has a DVD that she's currently uh, pretty obsessed with. It has a song for each of the numbers from zero to, I think, about 12, and then a little you know, cartoon, a little music video that goes with each one. And they're quite creative. Um, they're by a, a group called They Might Be Giants, which if you're of a certain age, you know, a group of my youth, which, like me, has aged and had children. So now they're making children's music. And um, I was struck by the song in the video for the number one, <laughs> which is really quite profound. And the refrain for the song is that there's only one everything. There's only one everything. And the video shows this little boy with his friend, the walking, talking globe. And they're kind of making big piles of all the stuff in his room and all the stuff in his house and all the stuff in his neighborhood. And then they, they draw like the outline of a big number one around it to kind of make the point that you put it all together and you just get one everything. And that's kind of the same thing that we're doing here in our meditation. You know, that on a certain level, there's only one thing that we're doing here. We're just paying attention, being aware. You know, we put the, 
the schedule up every day out on the bulletin board, and it's got sitting and walking and meals and interviews and talk and you know various things on it. It's got a whole bunch of different activities that are happening. But really, we could just as well put a sign up there that said, you know, 5 a.m. wake up, and then just after that, pay attention, because that's all that we're doing here. But what we're aware of as we pay attention is everything. And there's a huge quantity and variety to all of that stuff that makes up our experience. Everything that we encompass within that just one basic activity of paying attention. And this is very much the way that the Buddha presented his meditation instructions. You know, he'd say, just pay attention. He said that in lots of different ways. Just know each presently arisen state and be aware of it, be sure of it. So he emphasized the simplicity and the directness of the meditative experience. But then he also gave many teachings where he really broke it all down for us. What is this everything? Where he spelled it all out, what's included in this huge everything that we should pay attention to? Because it can be overwhelming, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own practice. There's so much that's happening most of the time in our bodies and minds. We may just not know where to start with it all. You know, it can seem like more than we can really take in at times. We can get a little disoriented within it all. So the Buddha spelled it out for us in various ways. And one of the most comprehensive ways is the teaching on what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, which is what I want to talk about tonight. One of the very first Dharma books that I bought when I started meditating in this tradition, maybe about 15 years ago now, was a short book by a Burmese teacher on this topic of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And I guess I had heard about it in meditation class and kind of gotten the idea that it was an important teaching and came across this book just kind of browsing through a bookstore and decided to pick it up. So I took it home and I started looking through it. And this was pretty early in my practice. And I wasn't too self-aware yet. <laughs> I was still relatively young, both in absolute terms and in the practice. And I hadn't spent a lot of time looking into my mind and body yet. And to be honest, there was almost nothing in that book that I could relate to. <laughs> Maybe a couple of things about being mindful of the breath, paying attention to the body, and that was about it. So I put it up on my bookshelf for later. But then I practiced some more, and I bought more Dharma books, and I was looking through them one day. And I thought, well, maybe I'll have another look at this Four Foundations book and see if it makes any more sense, if it's any more meaningful. So I took it down, and lo and behold, there was more in it that made sense. Still not a lot, but more. There was more that I had, that I had actually seen for myself in my own meditation. But most of it was still pretty obscure, and after just a little while, I put it back up on the shelf again. But over and over again, I take that book down over the years, and I check in with it. And then I put it back up again. And in fact, just recently, I've joined a study group in, Was in the Washington, D.C. area where I live that's made up of some teachers and very experienced senior students. We were talking one day, and we decided that we'd all gotten to a point where we were ready again to revisit this teaching. You know, these are people that have studied this material many times, many different ways over many years, but we decided that it was time again to revisit it. So this is really a teaching that keeps on giving. So 
So as Kamala was saying this morning, you know, really feel free to take what's useful from this. It's not necessary to absorb it all at once. In fact, I suspect it's impossible. So just listen for what resonates, and the rest will still be there to explore when the time is right. We don't really need to have that much intellectual understanding of the Buddha's teachings to be able to sit down on the cushion and just be aware of our experience. In fact, there's lots of stories uh, in the teachings of seven-year-old arahants that, are full, that have become fully enlightened. It's said that the Buddha taught in such a way that a seven-year-old child could understand it. So we don't need to take that much intellectually in. But we do need a little bit of knowledge. We need a basic framework for thinking about what we're doing. And we need to know just enough about what to do with our minds during our meditation so that we can pay attention effectively. That's really the goal. So the Buddha gave us this teaching on the foundations of mindfulness. And the term foundation is a little bit odd. It's a bit of an artifact from kind of 20th century attempts at, at translating these teachings from the original Pali language. But they're basically just four areas of our experience that the Buddha recommended that we include in our awareness. So they're four broad categories of present moment experiences that we need to pay attention to if we want to cultivate insight and wisdom. And the four foundations are first the physical realm the body and everything that we can know and experience with the body. The second one is what's sometimes called feeling or feeling tone. In Pali, the word is vedana, and it's one of those words that uh, really doesn't have a translation in English, but it refers to the whole spectrum of pleasure and pain, the pleasure-pain continuum. The third foundation is what we would call mental states, moods, emotions. And the fourth foundation is what's called dhammas, or truths, the great truths of life. And if we take these four broad groupings as a whole, together they include everything. It's a way of breaking down the everything of our experience, everything that we're bound to experience within ordinary reality. But the Buddha broke it down for us into what is hopefully more manageable bits, bite-sized pieces. Which particular bits we pay attention to is, to a large extent, up to us. So part of the process of developing the art of meditation really is learning what works best for our particular mind at a particular time, in a particular situation. It may be that at times we place our attention on just a small subset of everything, of all of these foundations of mindfulness. At other times, it may be that we can really allow our awareness to, to encompass many of them at once, to take in a big chunk of everything altogether. So there's no one right approach. This is a really important point. The Buddha didn't teach about the foundations of mindfulness in that way. Rather, he laid out the big picture, saying kind of, this is everything that you might possibly pay attention to in your meditation. And then he left it up to the individual practitioners, along with their teachers, to arrive at the optimal formula. In fact, it's said that one of the things that made the Buddha such a great teacher is that he could see exactly which meditation instructions would be the best possible approach for each person. So you could come in, sit in front of the Buddha, he'd take one look at you, and he'd know, this person needs to be mindful of 
x and y. And that's what they need for enlightenment. Unfortunately, we don't have the benefit here of that kind of omniscient teaching. Not yet. We're working on it. <laughs> but so we all really have to take responsibility for our own practice. You know, we need to experiment. We need to explore and see what works for us. And this is actually one of the things that I love about this particular tradition, that it is about exploration. It's about the empowerment to explore the truth for ourselves, rather than just accepting somebody else's word for it. And the Buddha said very clearly over and over again, you know, in, in vast teachings, this is the way it is. This is the nature of reality. This is the nature of humanity. He laid it all on the line. But then in the very next breath, he'd say, but don't take my word for it. Look and see for yourself if what I'm saying is true. Ehipasiko is the Pali term. It means come and see. Ehipasiko. So that's what we're here to do. And that's what you've all been doing here during this single excellent day. The first foundation of mindfulness, the foundation of the body and physical experience, covers a lot of ground. It includes a variety of different areas for contemplation. Some are what we think of as formal meditation, what we do during dedicated periods of meditation. And some are what could be called everyday mindfulness, just what we do as we go about our ordinary activities. And some are more conceptual reflections about the nature of the body that are designed really to reframe how we think about and relate to the body. And the first possible area for our attention that the Buddha presented is the breath, which has been a tried and true subject of meditation throughout human history, throughout the history of human contemplation. It's kind of an obvi obvious thing to pay attention. You know, we sit down, we're relatively still, we're relatively quiet, and what do we notice? We notice that we're breathing. And as long as we're alive, we're breathing. <laughs> and for most of us, the breath is a relatively uh, unexciting experience. It's not something that we get too worked up about one way or the other. Not always true, but for many of us, much of the time. So it's a very obvious thing to pay attention to, to notice. And we can use it as a home base. And many of you I know have been uh, trained in this way, to use the breath as an experience to pay attention to, to steady the mind to build concentration as a place to come back to when we get disoriented or lost or overwhelmed. And it can be very useful in that way. The Buddha recommended that we could notice the breath just with general awareness, just simply noticing breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, just very simple baseline level of mindfulness. Or we could also notice the breath more closely in more detail and he gave this um, analogy of a carpenter turning a piece of wood on a lathe. I remember doing this in junior high school, like in basic woodworking class, and being very impressed. You know, you have this long piece of, this long block of wood, and you put it on a lathe, and you turn it, and you start to get all these, you know, wonderful undulations, and you can make your table leg or your lamp or whatever you want to make. So the Buddha said, in just the same way, we can see the unfolding of the breath. That really, if we look, no two breaths are exactly the same. That there's this flow to that movement of the breath in and out of our bodies that sustains us on and on and on. Some breaths stretch long, some are shorter, some are sharper, some are smoother. So if we look carefully, we can see all of those fluctuations. And we can use that attention to the breath to develop mindfulness, 
to, to develop the awareness of being very clear, knowing just what's happening. And we can also use it to build concentration, that effort of steadying the mind on the breath. Another way of reflecting on the body that the Buddha offered is what's called a re the reflection on the great elements, the four great elements, the, those being uh, earth, water, fire, and wind, or air. And we can use this in um, kind of a straightforward way of just reflecting that these bodies that we carry around, that we inhabit, are really made up of the same stuff as everything else in this world, all the other objects around us, all the other bodies around us, that uh, these bodies are not really distinct in nature from the, the tables, the chairs, the cushions, the other creatures that we share this world with. I remember um, hearing this factoid years ago that every, every cell in our body is, is, dies and is replaced like every seven years or something. So there's this way in which like, our bodies are never more than seven years old you know, on a certain level. So, so where is all that matter coming from? You know, we take it in, we take in lots of stuff, we create this body, some of it comes out, you know, it changes over, it dies. You know, does that matter really belong to us? You know, is it really something that we can delineate as being separate from the whole environment around us, this whole universe? So reflecting on, on those common material properties we share with just the whole physical world and we can also use this teaching as a guide for tuning into all physical sensations. So not just the breath, but turning, tuning into that quality of solidity in the body, heaviness, lightness in the body, the earth element. Tuning into the dimension of temperature in the body, heat, cold. Tuning into the dimension of movement, vibration, trembling in the body, the air element. Then tuning into the dimension of cohesion, and the sensations in our body, fluidity, how things hang together. So the Buddha really pointed us to open our awareness to take in all the sensations that we can experience in this body. And this can be very interesting too in exploring pain, something that we come up against in the early days of retreat here. You know, we're sitting and some part of our body is really complaining. But what is really that experience that we're calling pain? And if we look beyond that label, then we might just start to see, oh, there's some really intense heat there, or a sensation of stabbing that's really unpleasant, <laughs> or some kind of pressure, trembling. It can be all sorts of uh, elements that make up that experience that we kind of put a blanket label of pain on. If we can get interested in that, tune into the, the elemental building blocks that are making up that experience, it can be very interesting. The Buddha also directed us to turn our attention to the body in all of the different postures that it occupies. And classically, they're said to be four. So there's sitting, standing, lying down, and then moving around, everything else. And that's kind of the basis for the format that we've developed here on retreats. So we sit, obviously. We do walking meditation, moving around. There are times when it's appropriate to stand. And there are times when we're lying, either preparing for sleep, waking up other times of the day. So we have a chance to explore all of those different postures. So the Buddha is really pointing to the fact that we need to bring our awareness into every activity that we're doing. It's not just all about sitting. 
sitting is kind of a happy medium for a lot of us. You know, there's this balance of kind of being rela relaxed because we're settled on the ground, but we're also upright, so it brings some energy. So for a lot of us, that's a happy medium. But we really want to bring awareness into the other positions as well. There are lots of times in life when we're moving around, so we need to, to learn to bring our awareness into those times. And if we think about it, in this society, we're really most likely to end our lives lying down, in the lying down position. So that's something that we want to be familiar with. What does that feel like? Can we be aware in that position? The Buddha really emphasized that mindfulness is not something just to cultivate on the cushion. So he gave a teaching about uh, mindfulness with clear comprehension, which is really about bringing awareness into everything that we do, and going forward and back, and looking straight on and looking away, and bending and stretching, and wearing clothes, and carrying objects, and eating, and drinking, chewing, tasting, and walking, and standing, and sitting, and falling asleep, and waking, and speaking, and keeping silent. So you kind of get the idea. He gave very explicit instructions that we need to expand the field of our awareness to every activity that we engage in as we go through our day. And I would encourage you really not to underestimate the power of this mindfulness with clear comprehension. Just simply knowing what we're doing as we're doing it. If we're walking to the dining hall, just simply knowing we're walking to the dining hall, standing in line is simply knowing that we're standing in line. It's not a very deep or profound level of uh, seeing our experience, but just simply keeping that baseline connection with what's actually happening. We tend to make a lot of effort in retreats like this in the formal meditation periods, you know, the, the defined sitting periods, the defined walking periods. And then the rest of the time, it's kind of maybe break time, right? <laughs> time to go to the bathroom, time to get a cup of tea, uh, time to maybe not be so careful about what the mind is doing. But for many of us, we really need to actually relax our effort in the formal meditation. We can end up striving too hard, making too much effort so that we get exhausted. And we need to amp up the awareness in those in-between times when we're really taking a break and not paying attention. What's most effective is really to level the playing field so that we're really approaching every moment with the same quality of attention and interest. Whether it's on the cushion, or in the dining hall, or in our rooms, or in the bathroom, that's what's really going to give momentum to our awareness and open up the opportunities for insight to arise. The second foundation of mindfulness in this scheme is the, that foundation of Vedana, that word that's so difficult to translate, feeling or feeling tone or affect, sometimes it's translated as, the pleasure-pain spectrum, that dimension of our experience. And that can be everything from you know, the most intense, blissful, ecstatic pleasure we've ever felt <laughs> to the most agonizing, grueling you know, pain that we've ever experienced, and everything in between. It's very interesting that we don't have a word for this in English. You know, it, it seems like it's such a fundamental part of our experience, but we don't even really have a word to identify it in English. So I think it tends to fall off of our conceptual radar. It's not something that we necessarily think about explicitly. 
And yet it's clearly one of the fundamental dimensions of life as a sentient being. Even the most basic you know, single cell organisms, you can see in the science experiments, you put the, the drop of sugar in there and they run towards it or swim towards it. You put the drop of vinegar in it and they, they flee to the other side of the, the Petri dish. And we're really not any different. You know, these responses are very automatic and very deeply conditioned. And they're actually present in every moment of, of experience, every moment of consciousness. So in every moment that we're awake, there's some perception of a certain quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or somewhere in the middle that's kind of neutral. And yet we're seldom aware of it, even though we feel it and we're really driven by it continuously. It's usually only the strong feelings that we notice, you know, that really intense pleasure or the really awful pain, you know, then we notice it, it comes onto our radar. But there's a huge territory in between that we tend to usually not notice. This is the, the big bulk of our lives that are, that's kind of, we consider the in-between times, the boring times, the times when we're waiting for the intensity to come. So it makes sense to include this dimension of our experience as a subject for our awareness because it is such a huge and fundamental aspect of our lives. And our natural tendency is not to be explicitly aware of it as a phenomena in and of itself. We tend instead to focus on the object or the experience that it comes along with, the experience that's generating it. So if we're sitting and we're having a really delicious lunch, you know, the thought that we'll have is this meal is really good, this food is so tasty. And we really focus on the food and the, and the meal and the eating rather than the, the simple fact that, oh, there's a lot of pleasure happening right now. That's another part of the experience is the pleasure. It's really distinct from the eating and the experience of the eating. And the same thing with pain. You know, we're sitting and there's a horrible pain in our back. We get really focused on, oh, my back is really hurting. What am I doing to my back? Is it the same back injury? You know, we're the, it's the back that becomes the focus of our attention. And that's part of the experience. But another part of the experience, another dimension to it, is just simply the pain, which is different from the back, different from the physical sensations in the back. It's that feeling of, you know, unpleasant feeling. So it can be very interesting to explore this along with the actual physical sensations that we feel. And this, this Vedana, pleasure and pain, is a natural biological adaptation. You know, it helps us in our lives in very practical ways. Pain or displeasure alerts us to situations that are dangerous or potentially damaging, things we need to avoid or address. And pleasure alerts us to productive, potentially productive or supportive situations that we want to encourage. You know, the desire for food or rest, companionship. But very little of our pleasure and pain is actually related to situations that we need to act on if we examine it. Most of the pleasure and pain that we feel is just simply a reflection of our conditioning, our biological conditioning, our psychological conditioning. But subconsciously, we tend to relate to all feeling as if it's really important, it's really pressing, something needs to be done about it. A good example of this is uh, road rage. You know, we're driving in the car, somebody cuts us off, does something really maybe potentially dangerous, at least inconsiderate, 
and there's this big reaction that's so unpleasant. The experience is unpleasant, and then maybe we have an emotion that's also unpleasant. So a huge rush of unpleasant feeling. But actually in that situation, there's nothing that, that we need to do. We need to just keep driving as safely as we can. You know, we might feel the urge to do all sorts of things to this other driver, but that's not actually productive in that situation. So if we don't see the unpleasant feeling that we're experiencing there, we skip immediately to that next step of, oh, I've got to do X, whatever, to get back, to you know, get it out of my system. And advertising is a whole exercise you know, and trying to arouse pleasant feeling. We see certain images, and they're so appealing. You know, they give us a really good hit of pleasant feeling. It looks beautiful, or sounds beautiful, or smells beautiful, or whatever it is. And we jump right to, oh, I've got to get it. This is the whole point of advertising. But in fact, all that's happening is just that we've seen something, we've heard something, we've tasted, smelled, touched something, and it's been pleasant. And we liked it, and we enjoyed it. That's all that happened. So learning to tune into the second foundation of Vedana can really help to free us from the compulsion to just unconsciously act out those feelings of pleasure and pain. The third foundation of mindfulness is contemplation of the mind, what the Buddha called mental states. And for a lot of us, this is really at the heart of why we're here. And it's something that we emphasize a lot on this retreat in particular. We really want to learn about how the mind works. So the third foundation of mindfulness directly addresses that. It's said that the nature of the mind is naturally clear, bright, luminous, and that storm systems of difficult mental states pass through that clear sky. So when the mind is not clouded, then emotions like kindness, compassion, generosity very naturally surface and manifest. And when the clouds roll in, then we experience emotions that stem from longing or irritation or just confusion, being out of touch. And we call those difficult emotions or afflictive emotions. And they can take many different forms, but they're all facets of what we call greed, hatred, and delusion. And Steve is going to talk more about this tomorrow. But the norm is to take our emotions very personally. You know, we think I'm an angry person, or I'm a selfish person, or whatever, as if there was some stockpile of anger inside of us, some stockpile of craving, some piece of our psyche that was hardwired, you know, especially for that emotion that's always lurking. We may take our emotions so personally that we need to avoid them or deny them. It's too painful to feel that we're defined by those difficult mental states. We can feel like the emotional dimension is really a minefield that we need to avoid or manage very carefully. But when we meditate on this third foundation, we start to see that emotions are really quite ephemeral. You know, we're sitting, we're minding our own business, maybe just feeling a breath, and a thought pops into our head. And boom, all of a sudden there's anger, or there's fear, or there's sadness. Then maybe there's the sound of a bird, and there's delight, or, or joy, or irritation. So we start to see that there's this constantly shifting parade of emotions marching through our mind. And if we don't make a big deal about them, then they really just do their own thing and move on of their own accord. 
just like all of those sensations in our bodies, just like all those feelings of pleasure and pain. None of these things really have any substance or relevance as to, as to who we are or what we are. As human beings, we're all high hardwired to have the capacity for the same basic mental states. We all experience wanting, craving. We all experience not wanting, disliking. We all experience just spacing out and being disconnected. And those emotions will all manifest when the, condi when the conditions are right. When conditions change, then other emotions will manifest. So it's really not personal. It's just about being human. So contemplation of the mind, the third foundation, is about becoming sensitive to the quality of the mind, knowing when it's colored with a particular mental state. So instead of focusing on what is happening, we might notice how the mind is responding to it. So we might notice that pain in the knee and feel that, but then we can also shift the attention and ask, well, how does the mind feel about that? Just with a non-judgmental attention and interest. So not trying to change the emotion, not beating ourselves up, judging ourselves for having it, or feeling proud if it's something nice on the other side, but just noticing, how does the mind feel about this? Or maybe we come out of some train of thought, maybe about something from the past or something from the future, something we're planning for the future, maybe about the nature of the Dharma. And we notice that thought. But then we can also shift the attention to the quality of the mind in that moment. How does the mind feel about that? How does it feel coming out of that thought? What's the texture of it? Just noticing if we're worried, exciting, excited, if we're wanting to control, wanting to avoid. <coughs> Just noticing. This is the mental state that's present. Or we may, may notice what kind of mental states aren't there. So maybe we're meditating and we come out of some thinking, and we might expect that thinking to give rise to a certain kind of feeling, a certain emotion. But we notice that this time it's not there. Or maybe it's present at first, but as we pay attention, we notice it, that it disappears. The conditions change in ourselves and our circumstances, and it's just gone. So we can see not just when the clouds are filling the sky, but also when they pass. And the point is not to get past the emotion or avoid it, but just to be clear and see how the emotions are changing and flowing by. Now there's this emotion. Now there's this one. Now the mind feels this way. Now that. They come and they go, and it's an ever-shifting picture. It's constantly in flux. Contemplation of the mind in this way also applies to noticing the energetic quality of the mind, so knowing when the energy is low or high. And we get to see this a lot in the early days of the retreat, all the sleepiness and the restlessness. And the tendency is really strong to want to clear these things away, you know, to want to get over them, to want to fix them, to want to get past them. You know, we can really feel like these are uh, stumbling blocks, impediments in our practice. And they can be if we get hung up on them, but they don't have to be. There's actually nothing that we need to do about these unpleasant states, these difficult states, except just be aware of them. You know, these are things that arise in our lives all of the time. If you think about your life outside of retreat, do you struggle with sleepiness? Do we struggle with restlessness? These are things that we want to learn to include in our awareness. Another aspect of awareness of the mind has to do with noticing the degree of concentration that's present. And this can be an interesting one. 
Also, when we come on retreat, we really tend to want more concentration. We tend to want to develop the concentration. It makes us really feel like we're meditating once the concentration gets strong. And we may do various things to deliberately work at that, to try to boost the concentration. But it's just also just as valid to just be aware of the degree of concentration that is and isn't present. This is another dimension of the mind, another dimension of our experience. We can recognize when the mind comes together, when there is that focus and precision of the mind, when the concentration is there. And we can also recognize when it's not there, when the mind is scattered. That's another aspect of our experience, another dimension of our experience that's important to know, something that we are faced with all the time in ordinary life. What does the mind feel like when it's scattered? What does the mind feel like when the concentration isn't so strong? That can be very interesting and important to recognize. The last foundation of mindfulness, the fourth foundation, is mindfulness of dhammas, which is another word that's difficult to translate. It can be translated as truths, as great truths, teachings. But this one is about learning to understand our experience through the framework of the Buddha's teachings. So it includes five key teachings that are fundamental to insight and wisdom. So we can be aware of the experience of the body, the first foundation. We can be aware of the experience of feelings of pleasure and pain, the second foundation. We can be aware of the experience of mental states, the third foundation. And we can also be aware of our experience through the lens of the Buddha's key teachings. These are the aspects of our experience that the Buddha pointed out as worth taking special note of. So it's kind of the Buddha's top five list. And we can think of it as awareness of the facts of life. That's one way of seeing it. So with the first three foundations of mindfulness, we're really exploring our own personal, immediate experience. You know, the experience of our own particular body, our own particular mind in any given moment. With the fourth foundation, we're exploring more of the universal principles that apply to all of us all of the time. And this includes the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths. Lots of good lists in there. (laughs) And some of you are probably already familiar with some of these lists and their meaning. And we're going to talk more about them throughout the retreat. But just briefly, to give you an overview, the five hindrances are craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. So these are also all things that we can be aware of in our meditation. The seven factors of enlightenment are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And these are also all things that we can be aware of in our meditation. These are particularly powerful qualities of mind. So the Buddha singled them out to give special attention to. And together, these two lists make up kind of the the dark and the light sides of the force. So the hindrances are those forces of the mind that lead to suffering, while the enlightenment factors are those forces of mind that lead towards peace. So we can become sensitive to this interplay between these different kinds of forces in our minds, recognizing when mental states are present that are generating suffering. It's really important to pick up on. 
and recognizing when mental states are present that are leading to peace. Also very important to know. Another complementary pair in this foundation are the five aggregates and the six sense bases. And these are both ways of deconstructing our experience into its component building blocks so that we can see the truth of what we really are. The five aggregates takes all physical phenomena as one category, the physical aggregate. And then it breaks down mental phenomena into four subcategories of consciousness, feeling, that same Vedana that we were talking about, perception, and then kind of all other mental formations. The six sense bases, on the other hand, takes all mental phenomena as one category, everything that comes in through what we call the mind door, the sense of the mind, and then breaks down the physical phenomena into five subcategories corresponding to the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. So when we're aware of these various building blocks of our experience, then we can start to see them for what they really are, which is just fleeting, impersonal phenomena that don't leave any lasting sense of satisfaction. And the Buddha pointed out that this, too, is worth taking particular note of. The last area of awareness that the Buddha recommended we pay attention to is the Four Noble Truths, the really central teaching of his doctrine. The first truth being just the simple fact of suffering, just noticing when suffering is happening. And this can actually be tremendously freeing, just to really honestly recognize when suffering is happening. I find at times when physical or mental pain becomes really overwhelming, really difficult to manage, that this is a refuge that I can fall back on. You know, the body, the mind may be in a lot of uh, tumult, a lot of difficult things going on. We can't really catch all the details of what's happening in the body and the mind. But we know that we're suffering. We know that this is suffering. So kind of when worse comes to worse, we can fall back on this level of awareness. And the Buddha included this as part of what we can pay attention to as part of our practice, just simply knowing this is suffering. This is the first noble truth just as important as anything else that happens. The second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. So this is about seeing how our mind generates states that lead to suffering. The third noble truth is the truth of the end of suffering. So seeing how our minds generate conditions that bring suffering to an end. And as we're continuous and diligent in our practice, we start to see this more and more. We start to see the series of events that lead us down the path that brings us into that grip of suffering, that difficult situation, how the, the mind and the body play against each other and feed into each other and lead us to that difficult condition. And then how the reverse happens, how the mind uh, maybe notices something that's happening. The mindfulness comes in, it catches something. There's some interest that's aroused. Our attitude becomes more uh, wholesome, more productive. And it starts the chain of events that leads us out of the suffering and back to a place of calm and composure. So as we're continuous in our practice and diligent and watching moment by moment how things unfold, we start to see those noble truths. And the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. And this is about being aware of those activities and understandings that help us to mature in our spiritual path so that we move more towards the end of suffering and away from the source of it. 
So all of these noble truths are things that we can be aware of and recognize in concrete ways in our moment-to-moment experience. And again, the Buddha pointed out here in the fourth foundation that this is very much worth doing. So this is just a very brief introduction to the four foundations of mindfulness. And we're going to be exploring some of these topics in more detail in coming days. But we wanted on this first day to give you some sense of the vastness of this practice, of just how much it encompasses. You know, the field of what we can bring into awareness, of what we can notice, and what we can benefit from in our practice is really tremendous. It's everything. And that's kind of the sense that we get from this teaching on the Four Foundations. Everything's in there somewhere. So we don't need to limit ourselves to some small, confined sense of what the practice is or should be. Instead, we really hope to open to the possibility, eventually, of exploring all this terrain that was mapped out by the Buddha, this vast terrain of experience, of really fully coming to understand the richness and the wealth of what it means to be alive. On the other hand, if all of this information really has your head spinning at this point, then you can always just remember there's only one everything. So if you find it helpful to think about one or more of these foundations of mindfulness in your practice, then make use of it. Use these teachings. But if not, then just remember to pay attention. Just remember to show up for this moment and be aware of what's happening in whatever way is effective for you. The rest is really all details. What's most important is that we nurture each day our aspiration to have another single excellent day. So let's sit for a minute. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. 
Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, is one who has had a single excellent day.